and welcome to the eighth and the last episode of the Marta Fogt podcast series, where eight women, doctoral students, postdocs, and junior researchers share stories about their journey to science, motivations, and challenges. This series is created and produced by Forschungsverbund Berlin, and I'm Natalia Stolarchuk, the moderator of this podcast. The guest of this episode is Dr. Shannon Curry. She is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Evolutionary Ecology of the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research. As Shannon puts herself, she is fascinated by bats and hearts. In her research, she focuses on cardiac physiology and echophysiology of small mammals, bats in particular. Her main goal is to understand deeper how animals cope physiologically when faced with current and changing ecological pressures. In our interview, Shannon tells in detail about the questions that drive her research, scientific challenges she faced during her career, and field experiments. She also recalls a moment in an Australian cave that defined her path as a bad scientist and reflects on the hurdles of the research work pitfalls of the academic system, and what it takes to be a good mentor. Enjoy listening. So, hi Shannon, thanks for finding time for this interview. Of course. Quite recently you came back from the field studies, and can you maybe explain, tell a bit, what was it, where were you, what have you been doing? Okay, so my postdoc is investigating Uh, migration and the fuel that is used by bats and birds in order to sustain long-distance migration flights. And we know quite a lot about what goes on in terms of whether or not you're using carbohydrates or lipids, proteins, etc. for bird migration, but we have very little information when it comes to how bats fuel long-distance flights. So what we were doing in the initial phase of my fieldwork was to take some blood samples from bats and birds on their migration route in Latvia. And the Natusius bats, they are known to fly along the coastline when they will either go down into southern Europe or over into the UK and the Netherlands where they, uh, where they hibernate. We're trying to see in their blood what the proteins are that help to uh, regulate metabolism and what the metabolites are. So we can find out whether or not birds and bats are using similar mechanisms to ensure that they can fly for really long distances. The thing that's interesting about it is that mammals generally can only fuel uh, intense exercise partially with fats. They generally tend to use glycogen storage in the muscles. And then when those glycogen stores are used up, mammals tend to sort of hit the wall the way that uh, marathon runners do when they've been going for a very long time. So we're quite intrigued as to how bats are able to keep going during their migration flights. So we want to know whether or not they're also just feeding on insects in the sky as they're flying or if they're actually able to just use what fuel they have in their body and get to where they need to go. That was the first stage of what we were doing. And then I took bats from Latvia that were migrating and we actually then got on the ferry and traveled with them to Sweden. And in Sweden, we were doing similar studies, but this time we were seeing how far the bats can really go. When you catch them while they're migrating in nature, We can't really control those conditions. 
And so the question that we're answering there is what are they actually fueling migration with? And then when we do a controlled experiment, we see what are their bodies capable of? So what we did was we had them flying under controlled conditions in a wind tunnel. And then they fly for 30 minutes, which is about the time that they would start to get naturally a bit tired. And we can see whether or not they actually shift into using lipids or whether they still will uh, fuel their metabolism with carbohydrates and glycogen. That was the whole study. And you spent there about two months, right? Yeah, I was gone for nine weeks. So you, you were able to collect uh, the results that you wanted to or something uh, went unplanned? We had a few, a few uh, hiccups, which is part of field work. In the field season, everything went to plan. We were able to collect data from a number of different birds and bats. Uh, we focused solely on uh, Pipistrellus natuzzi because they are a known migrating species. They're in high, high numbers in that area. And then the bird species that we were looking for is called Sylvia atricapilla, which is the black cat. And then uh, our studies in Sweden were a bit difficult simply because training animals to fly in a wind tunnel takes effort. <laughs> so it was a learning curve for me and for the birds and the bats because we were using both birds and bats there as well. With the bats, I've done this sort of study many times before, so I knew exactly what to expect and how to encourage them to enjoy flying in the wind tunnel. But the birds was a brand new endeavor for me. So that was uh, exciting and challenging because we got a few individuals that just basically like to sit on my hand and not fly. It was very nice for me because it meant that I got to stroke them and talk to them, but uh, it wasn't so great for the experiment. So in the end, we didn't get We didn't get as much data as we would have hoped for, but there's always options for going back again next year and, and collecting more data on a different group of migrating individuals. The only problem with this kind of study is that it has to happen in the migration season. You have this short window within which you have to get everything done. So, so you have to plan your year in advance, basically, basically, for your field experiment. Exactly. And if you don't get it then, it's another year before you can actually get more data. So outside, uh, for your project, outside of migration season, you, you stay in the lab, you do office work, lab work mainly. Yeah. So um, for the postdoc that I'm hired for now, that is the migration is the main focus. We are also uh, collecting samples from individuals in the non-migration season because we want to be able to see whether or not these, these adaptations are associated only with the migration season or if bats in general just are well adapted to utilizing multiple different fuel sources. So we want to see whether there's an upregulation of certain genes at specific times of the year and if that is in balance with sort of other things in their environment, whether or not they're trading off that ability with things like uh, reproduction, etc. So we know that in birds there are certain aspects of what they do that that are also geared more towards migration season being specifically when they are able to gain a lot of fat when they're when they're their muscle mass increases specifically, and it's not like that in other times of the year. But it will be very interesting to see with bats because they also hibernate throughout the year and specifically for an extended period over winter. So there's also a trade-off there in terms of how you fuel metabolism, what it is that you're doing, and trying to sort of balance high energy with an extremely low energy alternative as a in order to budget how, how you're using your energy throughout the year. So 
that's one of the interesting things about studying bats is that you have these extremes. Can you tell a bit of, about your background? Where and how did you actually started to be interested in bats? So uh, my background, I was born in the U.S. but moved to Australia when I was fairly young. So I did my uh, university degree at the University of Western Australia, my undergraduate degree. During that time, I had a lecturer who was very interested in bats and used to use bats as a primary example for everything amazing, behavioral ecology, reproductive physiology, cardiac physiology, anything, evolution, all of these different things. You would always bring a, a great bat example in. So I started being fascinated very early in my zoology degree. And then I had a, a little bit of a, a Batman-like experience when my family went on a camping trip and we visited a cave that was in the north of Western Australia and had uh, an accidental, accidentally disturbed a colony of bats. And they came like rushing out of the cave. My brother and sister are screaming. My parents are flipping out. And I was basically like, this is my heaven. This is so amazing. It was really a wonderful experience. And I think at that moment I was like, I definitely want to study bats. How old were you then? I was 20. I was fairly old. I wasn't a child. I wasn't so young, but uh, it was definitely, it was amazing for me. And I retold the story to my sister recently, and she informed me that when the bat, because a bat landed on me, and I remember sort of looking at it and thinking, oh my God, you're so amazing. She said I talked to it. She was like, oh yeah, you, you had like a conversation with the bat. So I was pretty fascinated. Uh, like moment. the bats chose you exactly basically. that's that's basically what happened the bats just called me and said yes please study us work with us and then um my background is really in i'm a physiologist and i have a deep fascination for cardiac physiology i started my first research projects working on torpor and hibernation and then I moved into working on specifically like cardiac physiology in hibernators. And that's what I focused on for my PhD. And I looked at different species of bats in Australia and how they hibernate and how their hearts function during torpor, if it's short-term or long-term torpor. And keeping bats in captivity to do those projects also just made me deeply connected to them. They're very interesting animals to work with. They're very tameable and they're super intelligent and really lovely animals to work with. So, well, I mean, I feel like people are on one end of the spectrum or the other when it comes to bats. People either love them or they hate them, but I'm far, far on the, on the end of, of loving them. So that's what I did for my, my PhD. And then because I'm so fascinated with cardiac physiology, you can't study just the times when the heart is beating very slowly. So I then decided to shift gears and start focusing on flight physiology and looking at cardiac physiology in flight. And in order to do that in bats or in any animal really, you have to become closely involved with new technologies because we can't connect a very tiny animal up to a lot of wires and have them flying. It just doesn't work. And so I was working in Israel for my first postdoc, 
trying to get some heart rate loggers off the ground, looking at how to miniaturize them, to use them with smaller bat species, and to sort of perfect the technology so that we could get clean electrocardiogram recordings so that we could really be sure that what we were assessing was heart rate and not just other muscle activity, which proved to be quite difficult, but we managed to really get some some interesting data and use it on bats in the wild. So then we were able to say what their heart rate was in flight, what their heart rate is when they're sitting still. And doing that, we can sort of map daily, weekly, monthly, yearly energy budgeting and take a look at what the reality is for these animals in the wild. Because a lot of the data that we have for physiological stuff comes from the lab and we make assumptions and extrapolations associated with that. So that's kind of where I've been heading my research. Where you like in this uh, first postdoc, you really had to switch in sort of yeah. engineering work, yeah. as I understood correctly? Yes, definitely. I mean, I was still collecting a lot of the same physiological data that I, that I originally was, but alongside that, I had to learn a lot about the technology that we were using and gain a greater understanding of the engineering of it so that I could inform the engineers of what needed to be tweaked and fixed in order for us to then get a better quality logger. And in the process, you learn a lot about electrical conduction and motherboards and soldering. And yeah, which was not your not at background all. at all. But that's quite interesting. I've had a, a really good opportunity throughout my career to sort of expand into different realms. I think one of the things with uh, animal physiology is that I don't even know if it's necessarily physiology. With a, lot of, with a lot of sciences, you're only as good as the technology that you have at your fingertips. And so the more you can understand how to tweak that technology to your advantage, the better. And while human medicine and animal physiology associated with medicine gets quite a lot of funding. Comparative animal physiology is, we are not always flush with cash. So you become quite frugal and very good at uh, learning how to make the best of what you have. And, and so that was also something that was really uh, beneficial for for me in terms of learning about this engineering stuff, because it also meant that I could rewire other things that I was using to make them work for me in a way that was good. Yeah, and uh, after this postdoc, you moved to yeah, Germany, Yeah, so, right? uh, yeah, then I uh, started at the Leibniz Association with the Humboldt Fellowship. How did you choose this project? It was more of an extension of the research that I have really been doing and wanting when I was in Israel, the species I was focusing on were quite large fruitivorous bats. In the Egyptian fruit bat is a very common bat in Israel. So I wanted to shift into trying to make these heart rate loggers more functional for smaller bat species because most of the bats in Europe are temperate species and they're quite small. They're less than 50 grams. And the rosettes are. 150 grams. So we kind of have to adjust the, the technology. In the same way, the bats in Europe are also going through that phase of hibernating and flying every day. 
So the range of heart rates that they experience is so much higher. We're talking a heart rate of three or five beats per minute when they're in torpor, which they do so during the day. And then in the evening, when they wake up to forage, they're within an hour or so, their heart rate ramps up to about 400, 500, 600 beats per minute. And then when they fly from the one or two studies that are available, it's suggested that their heart rate can go over a thousand beats per minute. So we're talking a thousand beat per minute heart rate range within a period of two hours, which is astonishingly fast for such a huge change. And so that was sort of where I wanted to go with this. So I wanted to be able to then take a look at getting a, a very clear picture of how we could use heart rate to assess energy expenditure in these small bats. And I was combining this heart rate technology with technology that exists here in Berlin at the Leibniz Institute with my uh, supervisor, Christian Faw, which is using stable isotopes to measure energy expenditure during flight. So the idea was to combine those two outlooks together to then be able to, to look at energy expenditure in a small bat species that is very widespread. We were specifically focused on noctual bats because they're an urban dwelling species. They're very common in Berlin. And we wanted to see whether or not how they're utilizing energy in the city is any different from how individuals who are out in more natural habitats are expending their energy, where they're flying, how they're foraging, how long they stay in torpor, et cetera, et cetera. And then having a very good measure of energy expenditure by doing that using heart rate. Unfortunately, <laughs> the project didn't come to fruition. We had a lot of technical problems. And so we weren't actually able to collect all of the data that we wanted. And so that's still something that's in my back pocket that I would like to focus on. But as this project was coming to an end, this new uh, research looking at migratory fuel, migratory bats and fuel use during flight came up. And so I was able to sort of transition into this project. And if you just look back uh, to your career so far, what was the maybe the hardest thing for you in science, in academic research in general, the hardest challenge maybe for you? The funny thing is that I think part of the reason why people choose academia is because it's exciting to be able to travel the world. And at the same time, that's one of the most difficult things with academia. It's a bit of a love-hate kind of relationship because it's so fascinating to be able to live and work in other places around the world that other people don't necessarily get to go. And I mean, I would just spent two months going to Latvia and getting on a ferry and traveling up to Sweden and then coming back to Berlin. And I've been doing that for years since I've been in, in Berlin. I get to travel all over Europe and I got to live in Israel, such a fascinating place. But at the same time, it becomes difficult to be away from your family and friends and to restart your life so frequently and in such short time frames. My postdoc in Israel was only one and a half years. That's not really enough time to sort of establish a life anywhere. And the same thing happened here in Berlin. The Humboldt Fellowship is only two years. And after a year and a half, this new project came up and... I decided to jump on it, not only because I was interested in the project, but also because it meant I could stay somewhere 
and sort of begin to build a life for myself. But that struggle still exists because there's a chance that at the end of this postdoc, there won't be more funding or I will have to travel again. And I think that that's a major like life struggle that happens. But work-wise, the same thing applies. When you are traveling, you have to learn new languages and you have to become culturally aware of how work is conducted in different environments. And I find, I've found that to be fascinating and challenging. It took me a year and a half to really like understand how to work in the Israeli work environment. And then it was like, oh, that's what I was supposed to be doing. Oh, okay. Well now I'm leaving. But I think that's just a, that's just a common thing for, for life in general. You always learn things either in hindsight or at the very end of going through them. Yeah. But I understand what you mean. Like it also takes a lot of energy and mental energy to adopt. And then you have to do your research. And then in a year you have to do the same. It's really exactly. difficult. The other thing that I think is interesting is that working with different people, you begin to discover that what you desire and what your research goals are aren't always aligned with the lab that you're in. And that shifts and changes depending upon where you are. So that's another way that you need to learn to be flexible. Because if you want to have a good working relationship with people, and you want to be able to get your work done, you also need to understand that other people have different expectations of your time, which is can be challenging. Probably also a lot of people choose academia because uh, they say there is a lot of freedom, you can do what you want. But I guess the longer you stay, the more you realize that it's not really the case. You cannot always do whatever you want. Exactly. I, I think that also really depends. I think there are two paths into academia. And neither path is more or less uh, valuable, but I think that there are people who choose certain aspects of their research just because it excites them. And then there are people who follow the existing paths. The, what I mean by that is that you have, sometimes you have people who will from the get-go only seek out funding that is essential to them. They write their own grants. They have their own ideas already. And then there are other people who come in and they say, oh, here is a project that exists. I will join this project and work on this project. And then when this project is over, I will search for another project that someone else has already thought up and exists. And in that way, sometimes I feel perhaps that would have been an easier choice for me. Like the project I'm on now, I did not come up with everything to do with it. It wasn't my baby. It's not my brainchild. And if I'd have done that uh, a little bit earlier in my career, it might have been slightly different. But at the same time, I'm not so sure that I could have done that because I just wanted to answer my questions. I just really want to know how a bat's heart beats. That's what gets me up in the morning. It's not just bats even. I'm just obsessed with hearts. I think they're cool. And I find that more and more when I begin to do research that isn't necessarily directly aligned with that. And then I have a chance to fall back into it. And I think you see that with so many people, with supervisors that I've had who begin to go off on paths of maybe what is more popular what will enable them to get funding, what will ensure that they can remain in their positions, et cetera, which may not necessarily mean that they're not interested in them. But when you kind of move away from that, 
that little spark that made you start. And then you get to tap into that in someone. I've had these sorts of discussions with older academics who kind of left behind some of the things that they were initially fascinated with. And if you sort of begin to talk to them about it, you can see the sparkle come back and then be like, oh, I've always wanted to get that answer. I really want to know how this happens. And it would be wonderful if we could all follow just our passions and not have to play into some of the unfortunate games that come alongside. And there's something to be said for the fact that there's always been a fight for money. Everyone always needed to apply for grants. It's not like that disappeared. I think we've just altered the way in which we we do it. And in my personal opinion, we've flooded the market with PhD students master's students. We just encourage people to continue in the stream, even if it's not something that is beneficial to them. So now we have so many well-qualified people and we can't afford to pay everyone. We can't afford to hire everyone permanently. And I think that that's a really unfortunate aspect of it as well, is that not only are we searching, are we more people fighting for less money or the same amount of money, the money is only available for such short amounts of time now. The idea that, that a research project could take 10 years is just insane. But you know, sometimes research projects take 10 years and that should be okay. But unfortunately, I'm probably just screaming into the abyss like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that uh, we flooded the, with PhD students and master students. So what is the solution to that, what do you think? Because we, we also constantly try to encourage people to go for PhD and more and uh, how to find a balance with this. This is something that I've thought about a, a few times. I think one of the things that is important is to maybe explain to be, be honest with, with undergraduate students, because I think that there are a lot of students who are unsure of what it is that they want and therefore just do a master's because it's the next step. And from that master's, just do a PhD because it's the next step. I think one of the biggest things that we need to do is provide opportunities for students in all fields, but I mean specifically because I'm a biologist in biology, to understand that there is an availability of a career outside of academia. While academia may be a wonderful choice, I wish I had known that there was a statistic saying that less than 10% of postdocs get permanent positions. To have worked in, in a career for 17 years, to have been doing this for 17 years to get to this point and perhaps never be able to get a permanent job somewhere, I don't think that that should be real. I think that we should, if I'd have known that, I might have opted out a little sooner. I might not have, I don't know. I mean, I probably would, but I think that there, that I probably would have stayed because that's just the kind of person that I am. But I think that we need to inform people about other opportunities. And I think we also need to, and this might be something controversial, stop treating PhD students and master's students as cheap labor. It's a cheap and easy way for, for professors and higher ups in any organization to be able to fund their research goals. And instead of hiring PhD students, hire a research assistant, 
have research assistant roles, permanent technician roles that are available for people who have master's degrees, who don't want to do a PhD, who have the skills to conduct research, who do not have to fight within the system for first author publications, last author publications, who are contented with being able to do research for their lives, focus on their jobs and not have to play the rest of the game like everyone else. That's a totally viable option. I would say that Germany is pretty good in terms of having staff scientists at research institutions of other places in the world that I've worked or interacted with people. It's a rarity, but I think that's something that should be more available worldwide. And you yourself now also, uh, you teach at the Freie University. Yes. What kind of mentor are you trying to be for your students? One of the things that I think is really important with teaching is honesty, laughter and honesty. Those are like the, the cores of how I, how I function, not only in, the, in my teaching world, but just in general in life. I think that the world is really rough. And especially when, when you're in your early 20s and you're trying to figure out what the heck it is that you want to do with your life, to have someone who can be a mentor and lighten up the situation and talk to you in a way that makes you feel like a real person who's listened to, I think is really important. I don't want to manipulate the students into believing that the world in academia or anything else is any different than my experience of it has been. And I just try to be honest about what I've, what I've done. But also, it can also be very drab and boring sometimes. Studying can be boring. And I think you just kind of lead by example. I'm so excited by so many of the things that I teach And I want them to also see how it can be exciting. And I think that that's really important to sort of put forward your passion for a subject. You're not, this was something that I had to learn early in my teaching career. I thought if I walked into a room with 30 students and was bubbly and excited that all 30 students would look at me like, wow, this topic is so cool. And I could convince them all that bat hearts were the coolest thing on the planet. And I learned very harshly that it's a triumph if you get one or two students. And the reality of it is not everyone's going to like everything that you're doing. But so long as they come out of the class with a smile on their face and have actually walked away with something, anything, I think that that's uh, really important. Did you have such mentors or role models in your path? I think that um, my supervisor, my first mentor who was the, the lecturer at the University of Western Australia, Jamie O'Shea. He was a very enthusiastic and eccentric in the way that he taught us. And you can't help but sort of get dragged in when someone is explaining something to you and you see, like I said before, like the sparkle in their eye, how they're also just loving what it is that they're doing. Especially also because he was always open to us asking stupid questions. No questions are stupid, but when you're... When you're an undergrad and you feel like you don't know anything and you ask, you're like, am I dumb for asking this? He was always very open to talking with us after class about evolutionary theory and broader concepts with regard to that. And that was always really great. And then the true mentor, I think, that I really, that really changed me as a person and how I approach science or more supported me in a really positive way was my PhD supervisor which is part of the reason why I'm in Germany. He's a German man in Australia. 
Fritz Geiser. He was just just extremely supportive. He was always, he liked that I was excited. He got excited when I was excited. If I came running in to tell him something stupid, like, oh my gosh, the bat flew today, something very ridiculous. Or, oh, I recorded metabolic rate for the first time ever. He would join me in my joy. And he was extremely supportive in that way as well. And he also was no bullshit. I think I, I value that personally a lot. Like I said, honesty is super important. So I think that if you're, if you give criticism and feedback in a way that, that is kind while, while still being direct, it can be really beneficial for someone in the way that they grow as a, as an individual, as a researcher, as someone who is asking questions. So those were like the two main people in my life, in my academic career that sort of really had a, an impact on me. I come to the last question now. Is there any specific advice you could give to a woman who is aspiring to be a scientist? Ah, women in science. This is a obviously, I don't want to say controversial topic because I don't think it's controversial, but it's a topic that we really have been struggling with and talking about and needs great focus from the academic community at large and from individual women within it. I mean, obviously as a woman, I tend to inspire other women. The majority of my master's students have been women. The majority of the, the students that I interact with are women. They come to me because I'm a woman. I do have male students who I also, um, I'm very interested in having an important impact on as well because it's both, it comes from both sides, but um, it's a hard question. I think that the advice that I would give, don't give up, don't give up. Like, I think that's the biggest thing is that the world around you will always question you. Don't listen to their questions. One of the things that I've noticed more and more as I've gone forward in my career, and I don't know whether this is something that is associated with me being a woman, but I think it is because it happens in my personal life as well, is that men and other women have a tendency to ask you this one question. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. I've been doing this for a long time. I am an expert in my field. I'm sure. That should always be your answer. Don't let their questions derail your sense of knowing what it is that you're doing, whether that be in a meeting about something that you want to implement as a teacher, whether that be in the field whilst conducting your experiments, whether that be the direction you're trying to make a paper go, or whether that be the moment that you're being looked at for grant funding or a promotion. Are you sure this is what you want? Are you sure you're up for the task? Are you sure that you can handle it? And that is a really difficult question because it often does derail you and it makes you ask yourself, am I sure? And I don't think that's a question that men tend to ask themselves that often. They just are. That's not a question they get asked. So I think that my advice would be, don't give up and be sure. <laughs> Which sounds so easy, but it's so not. It's really, it's such a struggle to maintain balance when people are constantly sort of like, because that's one of the, the subtlest ways to derail a person's sense of self is to just question them on it. 
Thank you very much. I think it's a very beautiful ending of the discussion. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I think there is no better way to close this podcast series than the advice given by Dr. Shannon Curry. In case you have just landed here, I really encourage you to listen to the previous seven episodes. You can find them on the Forschungsverbund website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Each story and each guest is unique and offers a different perspective on science and academia. And from the trailer episode, you can also learn what inspired us to create this podcast and also a story behind its name. On that, I thank you very much for listening. And if you found this podcast useful or interesting, we would be very glad if you leave a comment or a rating to it if your application has such an option. I wish you all the best for your life and career. And goodbye.